Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Right for Your Life podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Robert Mills, who is a project manager, copywriter and recent author of Designing the Invisible, um, which is a marvellous book about... A quick hello, Rob, and then you can tell us. How are you doing? Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about um, what you do, where you do it, and then we'll talk a little bit about the book. Okay, great. Uh, I'm a studio manager for a uh, design agency in Newport, South Wales, called Blue Egg. Um, So that does involve project management, admin, copywriting, uh, content for the Blue Egg blog, uh, dealing with clients, you name it. It's sort of a, it's a role with many, many hats for me to wear. Um, so you're also uh, an officially an author now. So Designing the Invisible, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the book? And then we're going to talk, we're going to talk later on about the, the structure of it, which is quite important. And um, that's kind of the overall theme for this podcast, really, is, is, is writing to a structure or not, as the case may be. So if you just tell us a bit more about your, uh, your book to start with. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a web design book uh, through five simple steps. They kind of, uh, I think I'm about the fifth title now. So they, um, they've got a range of books all about web design. And uh, mine's really just about uh, creating great, great web experiences uh, and great web experiences tell a great story. So essentially it's about how we can tell better stories um, on the web. But it's sort of, it looks at, uh, how things like typefaces and colours and branding and, uh, and icons, how they can communicate uh, subliminally or invisibly. Um, and then it also looks at how how they communicate differently in different cultures and, in a, and depending on how you use colour and, uh, and and your branding and, and your different elements of your website, depending on the context you put them in, they, they tell a different story. So um, it tries to kind of look at these elements individually and look at how we can tell stories um, through through colour and these other elements on their own, and then how you can bring all those elements together on one page on one website to tell a coherent story. And I remember when I first um, when I first saw the title, which was uh, months ago, probably over a year ago at least, when um, when I first saw the title to it, Designing the Invisible. And, it, and I remember thinking, because I was deep in the midst of writing my novel at the time, I remember thinking of how how the same sort of the same thing applies not just to websites but pretty much to to all writing and especially fiction i find it's just it's 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 often the, the things that you don't necessarily say that is that convey the most meaning even if it's a piece of dialogue it's it's being able to um as a as a writer i think half the skill is knowing what to leave out but still leave the gaps i guess for the reader to um filling the story themselves and, and and um i'm not saying that's necessarily the same thing as what you're writing about but i think there are some some similarities yeah definitely i mean my background um is in media studies and journalism and that's all about even the journalism uh, my journalism degree was uh, all theory based but it's very analytical and so in all sorts of media you know it's all about deconstructing the, the media and there's there's messages and codes and everything you know in films in adverts you know in websites so it's just about breaking down uh, those kind of barriers of communication and seeing the stories that kind of, you know, that aren't the literal story. But I think you're right. I think they're often the invisible stories are the ones that are the most powerful because audiences don't actually realise that they're reacting to them. So, but the, the title was really interesting because uh, Designing the Invisible, we kind of struggled with a title and we went, we went through a few 
few kind of options very early on when the when the book was first kind of agreed, which was about three years ago. Um, and then we kind of it was Mark Bolton who uh, said, you know, designing the invisible. And at first, I was just like, no, you know, it's what does it mean? I, you know, I just didn't think that it was clear enough. And then it kind of grew on me, and I thought I quite like the fact that maybe it will make people ask questions, and maybe it is a bit of an enigma. Um, and then more recently, we you know we kind of sat down and we went through, well, just a brainstorming session for you know again to to see if we could come up with a title that was maybe a bit more descriptive. And we ended up with like things like invisible communication and all you know. It kept coming back to kind of communication, but we decided to go with the original. I think it's a great title. The, the, part of the reason, um, part of the reason I wanted to uh, to to talk to you specifically today was about the structure as well, because the title of the the, the name of the publisher is Five Simple Steps, mm-hmm. and um, it's about the, the, well, you can tell us the structure of the structure of the book and all the other titles has um, is quite tight. It's a very specific structure, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. It's. Um so there's five parts to every book, and within each part there's five chapters, um, so 25 chapters, um, which was, that, I mean, it was really interesting for me, because I, when I've written before, whether it be, um, you know, essays back in uni or uh, blog posts for Think Vitamin or the studio blog, you know, it was up to, I was never restricted by a kind of a structure or a word limit. You know, I chose the subheadings, I chose the, the length of the articles, um, and that was great because I would just, you know, write to whatever I needed to. So having a structure imposed was a bit intimidating, but it was also very good as well because it does give you something to kind of work towards. And it worked. It was certainly challenging. I mean, there were for, for one part of the book in particular, um, it was the part about colour, which I think is the longest part, actually. I, um, I could easily have done six or seven chapters for that. So then I had to look at what I was going to put in those two chapters that couldn't be included, would that fit into one of the five that could be included or would I have to, you know, to remove it? And it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about knowing what to include and what not to include, which is quite a hard decision to make. Um, but then there was another part where for, up until quite close towards, um, quite close before it was actually released, I only had three parts. So then it, the problem was different then. It's like, well, what can I take from those three chapters? Uh, you know, and can I take something from those three chapters and fill the other two, but then you don't want to spread it too thin and have five weak chapters. So it was really, um, you know, for most of the book, that kind of structure worked well, but for some of it, it was very, very challenging. And did you have, because I mean, most um, most copywriters and, and certainly journalists and even bloggers, I guess every, I mean, I have my own, I guess, a theoretical style guide on, on Write for Your Life as to how long a blog post should be, kind of one of my one of the full articles. So writers are quite used to word counts, but it's quite unusual to have um, re- restrictions of that nature put on you for a full-length book, because it's, it's a meaty book, it's 250-odd pages, isn't it? So did you have, um, did you have, uh, you had to do it in, in those particular sections, but did you even go as far as to have, like I say, for instance, a, a word count? Um, no, there was no no such thing. So I mean, one of the chapters is only about four pages long, and I think two pages of that is you know just a kind of a chart. So it's um, there was there was no um, restriction in that sense. It was literally just a structure of the five parts and the five chapters within each, within each part. Um, so that kind of that did give me a bit more flexibility, and you know, and I could kind of it wasn't an issue if I kind of wrote a chapter that was only 
you know, four pages, and I wrote one that was maybe 12 pages. It wasn't that they all had to be the same. So that kind of worked out quite well in the end. Um, but the, it was, the thing about having the five parts is it really made you think about you know, what you wanted to say. And obviously every writer plans and, you know, think, you know, thinks about what they need to say, but you, you know, you really had to just think about, it was basically broke, it's breaking it down, breaking the story down into certain segments. And then you had to figure out, you know, which way should it be? And, you know, where's the crossover? And, but I also didn't write the book in, you know, I didn't start a chapter one and work through to chapter 25. So I wrote, I wrote part three, first of all, because that's just why, you know, I'd done the most research for that. Then I think I jumped to part five. Then I went to part one. So it, was, it wasn't a kind of a, a linear process as such. Um, so that was quite challenging as well, because, you know, writing part three, I then had to think, right, so this is leading into part four, because obviously I needed it to be some kind of bridge between each section. Um, but then I, then I had to think, right, so where would I have come from or where am I planning to come from in part two? you know, to bridge that to the start of part three. And then when I did do part two and I'd already written part three, I then had to figure out, I had to make sure that I kind of joined them up. So it was really, it was a really strange process. You know, I kind of had 25 blocks and they were just constantly being kind of, it was a bit like Tetris, I suppose. They're constantly being shifted and, and moved around. Uh, that's an awesome analogy. I like that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I guess, I mean, I was talk, we were talking before we started the podcast. I had... A similar sort of experience, but I mean, I the the restrictions um, were self-imposed. When I when I started writing my novel, I decided that I wanted every chapter to start with a letter of the alphabet. Mm. So I and that, and that it would be one chapter per letter. So I basically, before I even started writing, I was so naive for goodness' sake. Um, before I started, I thought that um, I was going to have a, a novel with twenty-six chapters, and I actually finished a draft. In fact, the 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 draft that got me my agent was actually 26 chapters long. I somehow managed to shoehorn it in, but I think similar to how you've just described, I found that at first I found it gave me, um, I found it quite liberating because I hadn't written anything of that length before, and um, I had no idea um, what it was, what it was like, what was it, what, what what was involved, how I would approach it. So. By actually saying to myself, well, it's going to be, let's say, roughly 200 and, uh, 250 pages. Um, and if it's going to be 26 chapters, then I all of a sudden had a sense of scale. So I found it liberating in the sense that, well, I know how much I need to write. I know how long a chapter needs to be. And I know that sounds quite stupid because a chapter can be as long as you as long as you want it to be. But when you don't really have any idea about writing a book or when you, when you do it for the first time, then it's actually quite liberating. Mm. But But also, similar to... I think perhaps what what you're saying when you've written one part of the book and then you go on to the next one and do it in chunks, eventually I um, I kind of lost sight of the writing itself because I became so focused on making it fit this self-imposed structure that the novel uh, the novel became um, well the, the writing itself became um, I, I guess a bit lost. It wasn't as good, frankly. The, there were bits that I knew I'd I'd left out or I'd put in a certain place just because. Well, in uh, in some in some uh, on some occasions, it was simply because there was a letter of the alphabet that I wanted to call that chapter, which is ridiculous. You can't have mm. something like that telling you, uh, inf- you know, informing what you where you put it in the novel. So in the end, for me, it was um, I decided to change formula when I got an agent and they suggested some general changes anyway, and I suddenly realised I got all this, 
you know, I got to do some extra work on it anyway and I thought right this is it I'm going to dismantle it and completely put it back together and it went from being um, 26 chapters to I think 42 chapters in the space of three months oh. and, um, but even then that wasn't a case of writing more so writing an extra um, oh, I've given myself a math problem writing an extra 16 chapters it was more mm. a case of picking paragraphs from different places and then rearranging them and that was that was the abs- you know, just, a, just a nightmare but well, well worth it in the end yeah I can't I was actually thinking about this the other day. It's, it's weird that we chat about it now. I was driving to work thinking, you know, just going over the whole uh, sort of the book thing because, you know, I've been living with it for three years and just kind of you know, remembering the, the process and things. And I can't really imagine writing the book in any other way now. You know, and I know that probably seems like an obvious thing to say, but I can't really imagine... I can't think what the final book would have been had I not had that kind of five chapter five part structure to follow. Yeah. Because um, I just I just think it wouldn't have been a very well it, it wouldn't have been structured obviously you know as well structured but I just think it it would have been kind of outweighed you know there would have been far more about a certain topic than another one and kind of having that restriction you know I had to I just had to really focus what the content and what I was saying. So do you think that having such a tightly imposed structure gives almost gives your writing a sense of discipline? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it definitely does. And like I said, that, it can be challenging. That, that one part in particular when I was just taking things out of one chapter and putting them into another and then it didn't really, it didn't really flow and it didn't fit. And then, you know, I was just kind of scrambling around um, to try and find something, you know. But it, it was just really hard because for colour, I had so much to say. And then for one of the other parts, I still had a lot to say, but certainly not as much. Yeah. And then I was just, you know, I was, I was just worried about diluting it, diluting the content to kind of stretch it over that structure, you know. And it just, it, it was challenging, but you you need you need the discipline, and it, it kind of got, I think discipline with writing it goes beyond the structure of you know your book. It it kind of extends to the environment that you're writing and having a routine and all those kind of things as well. All things that you know. I learned an awful lot about during the kind of three years where I was uh, writing the book. And what is your writing routine? Do you still have all those things? Because I've, I, my novel was written on about six different laptops. Oh, this is partly because it took me so damn long, but mm-hmm. written on several several different laptops, different cities, all all sorts of things. Um, do you? But actually, now finally, I think I'm probably settled and I actually write in the same place on the same computer. So, uh, what sort of writing process do you have? Um, not, I didn't have one at all when I first went into it. I'll be honest, because um, I was I was working for um, Mark Bolton Design on Five Simple Steps at the time, so I was writing the book um, one day a week, you know, during work time, and then um, and then later on in the process when I was no longer working there, I was writing it all from home. Um, but as any anybody who works from home, whether they're writing or not, you, you know that there's interruption. There'll be somebody at the door, or the phone, or, or the TV, you know. So I really had to be strict with myself. So I found um, a, a space. It was the, the small spare bedroom at the back of the house, the quietest room, um, and uh, we we hadn't long been in the house, so it was pretty much an empty room, so there was no, no distractions in there. And that was my writing space. So whenever I had to write the book, I had to be in that room because it was almost like a kind of a, a change in mentality, a kind of a mindset. When I went into that room, it was like, right, I'm here to write. And if I tried to do it, whether it was on the sofa or in the kitchen at the table, it just didn't, it just wouldn't work for me. Um, 
Yeah. So I think just having that space is just absolutely essential. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty familiar. I think it is. Um, it's almost as if. Um, I think it's almost as if sometimes that it's almost like you get a special table. I mean, something like that, or a special, a special corner. I, I've I've found myself doing that lots of times, where I've just not been able to. You do feel like you have to take yourself away from the world every now and again. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and the internet usually. Yes, I mean, just little things like switching the internet off is just uh, it just used to make such a massive difference to my productivity. Although it was a bit awkward because I was writing a book about the web, so I was constantly <laughs> having to refer to you know the examples on the web. So that was quite difficult at times. But um, certainly during kind of proofing and, and that kind of stage, it was just me and the uh, me and the laptop and nothing else. No internet, no disturbances. So you mentioned proofing there. So you've actually you've um, you've gone the next step along the publishing process to, to where, where I am. Um, and you've worked with an editor and proofreader and that kind of thing. I mean, I work with those people at work, but that's a different kind of thing. It's not my book. And my agent, for instance, has been extremely helpful and has sort of taken on a part editorial role at times. But what's, what's it like? What's the experience of, of uh, working with a publisher on, especially on something I think that's um, quite niche. It's a, it's a book uh, about design for designers. So, um, not just for designers actually but it's, it's about a specific subject so what's, what's been your experience? Um, I, think I've, I think I've had a very privileged experience to be honest because um, I mean I, I worked at my publishers for, for a period so, so I had a very personal relationship with, with them anyway I mean um, you know, I was working with Mark and prior to that I had been working with Emma at BBC Wales um, so I had a very you know, personal relationship with them um, and I also think I was lucky with Five Simple Steps in that they genuinely care about their authors and their products. So, you know, the, the kind of level of support that they were willing to invest in me was, you know, it was quite kind of overwhelming at times. Um, but it was never overbearing. It was always, there was never any sort of, um, you know, when are we having this and what's going on with this and what's going on that? Because I had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life that was delaying the book. And there was never any pressure to, you know, for me to deliver, really. So I was able to kind of take a six-month writing break and then, then go back to it. So I think I had a very, um, I think I had a very privileged experience. But it was also, um, certainly in the, in the more recent stages when we were going through the final edits and the proofing and getting everything, you know, ready for launch, um, just knowing that there was somebody on the end of, you know, whether it was Skype or email or the phone or Twitter, you know, they've got a team there dedicated to, to it. Just knowing that there was always somebody there to help and, you know, answer a question um, made it... It's certainly... I'd be lying if I said it wasn't stressful for me, um, you know, at the end, just the sort of pressure and making sure it was perfect and so on. But it made it a, certainly a pain-free experience. Um, so I guess, I don't know if others can say the same. I think maybe I am quite lucky, but um, yeah, that was my experience. I mean, I, I think it's, it must be fairly natural to uh, be stressed out just before your book gets published and sent out to the world. It sounds stressful, never mind actually being in that position. Um, I mean, it, Yeah, it, it wasn't, um, they, you know, it certainly wasn't five simple steps putting any stress on me. You know, if anything, they were taking stress away because I knew that the book was in sort of, uh, I knew the book was in was in safe hands, given the uh, the quality of the ones that were released before it. But it's just, you know, I'm sure as as any well, you'll know, and I'm sure other writers know, you, when you spend so much time creating something, it's almost like 
it's like your baby, isn't it? You're so sort of protective and, and it's so personal to you that for me anyway, the thought of sharing it with everybody was equally exciting and absolutely terrifying. So <laughs> the weeks before the release, I was, I was swinging. I was, you know, two polar opposites. I was sort of giddy with excitement. I can't wait for people to, you know, to read it. And then I was just like, oh my goodness, you know, do we really have to share this with people? <laughs> <laughs> but the feedback's been good, hasn't it, so far, as far as, as, far as I understand? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've not heard any. Uh, I'd like to think that if people didn't like it, they would still be, you know, be willing to to tell me. But um, so far, yeah, it's just been, uh, it's all been good. So I can't, uh, I can't complain. And just to say to the listeners, if anyone reads my novel in the future and doesn't like it, I'd be perfectly happy for them to keep it to themselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, well, thanks very much, uh, Rob. I think it's time to move on to everyone's favourite part of the show, and it is a show, and that's um, our favourite thing. Um, mm-hmm. And my favourite thing this week is actually just my favourite thing that I happen to quickly look at today and haven't had a chance to... Um, fully investigate, but that's quite a long title, so I'll stick with our favourite thing. Um, have you got one, Rob? Yeah, but I'm, I'm a bit worried it's a bit lame, but um, I'm here now, so I've got to roll with it, hey? You've got absolutely no choice whatsoever. <laughs> um, I'll go first, we'll save the lame bit till last, that's always uh, the best way to go. <laughs> and plus, I can't really fail because mine is the Kindle Cloud Reader, which was launched today. Did you see it? No. So, basically, <laughs> Amazon, uh, this is kind of I guess this is in part their response to um, Apple um, and their pesky in-app purchase fees and the fact that um, Apple's uh, the, the Kindle app on the iPad and the iPhone can no longer have a link to buy books from the, Apple, from the uh, Amazon store. So people can't buy Kindle books actually from directly within the app anymore because Apple will take 30%. So that link, that button, that buy now button got taken out a couple of weeks ago. And now we have instead the um, Amazon, let me just check I'm pronouncing what it is correctly because like I say, I only just noticed it today, but I thought it was absolutely worth mentioning. So it's, they're calling it the Kindle Cloud Reader and you can get to it at read.amazon.com. And um, it's basically a web app. And um, at the moment, it's available on. Uh, I guess it's it's quite early stages. This is what I'm guess them they have, they don't say a beta release, but it looks like one. And it's available on Chrome, and then I think most tellingly Safari and iPad. Um, so of course, this now means that people can instead of having to go through the um, the the uh, the iPad app that's in the um, App Store, you can sort of not worry about that. You can just go through the browser to read.amazon.com have the same experience and actually buy from within the browser. So it's quite clever and um, it's worth mentioning because the look at it that I did take, um, it seems to be really well done. As with, as with pretty much every instance of, um, of, uh, of Kindle that I've seen, I haven't got a Kindle. I've, I mean, I've used one a lot and, um, and, and I, know, I know about it and I've, I do use the Kindle app on the iPad and the iPhone and the experience, the user experience so far has been pretty impressive and it looks like this is the same so um, Amazon bringing out the big guns by the look of it that's so much better than what I'm just about to say well I did kind of cheat I mean I, I, I didn't sort of find some obscure story like I normally do or, or talk about my own stuff which is actually what, my favourite thing this week is this thing that I'm doing which yeah. is pretty much what I normally do but you know it's my podcast so I can do what the hell I want 
I'm a, I'm a bit disappointed that your favourite thing's not my book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I've been found out live on air there, haven't I? Well, as I said, I've not quite finished it. I couldn't possibly comment on it until I finished it, but don't be surprised if it's one of my favourite things in the next two or three weeks. Two kinds, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's, uh, what's your favourite thing, Rob? My lame favourite thing is a, a website called theatlantic.com. Um, possibly is I don't think it's a new thing so possibly lots of uh, people have already uh, been reading it but uh, an illustrator friend of mine uh, tweeted something from there this week and uh, I've been uh, kind of spending lots of time on it since it's just a uh, it's just a news and uh, an analysis site uh, covering politics business entertainment and technology but it's just um I just like the quality of content and the thing with the internet is that there's always anybody can kind of publish content these days can't they you know it's so easy to do um, which results in often very poorly written uh, uninteresting content so uh, I just found the articles on the Atlantic to be um, of a significantly good standard yeah I've, I've, I have heard of the Atlantic I've not read it a lot but I know that a lot of a lot of uh I seem to get linked out to it quite a lot on Twitter and um, on Instapaper and things like that. There's lots of links going out to it, so it's, um, I've just got it on the screen now. It looks, looks pretty interesting. Thank you. Are you a subscriber? No. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. No. Win the new iPad 2 plus receive two free issues when you subscribe to The Atlantic. Mm. There you go. Bit of it is good. They had a good... Um, uh, the reason why it came to my attention is because they uh, wrote a good feature about... Uh, Bruce the Shark from the film Jaws. So there we go. Well, I'm already sold. In fact, if you, you have to send me the link to that and we'll uh, put it in the show notes. I will do. I will, yeah. I do like saying show notes. Okay. Um, I think that's it. Thank you very much for joining me, Rob. Remember, everyone, that you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes if you haven't done so already. Um, and um, we'd be extremely grateful if you could leave some kind of review because apparently that makes things brilliant i don't really know what it does i say that every time i do a podcast i've got absolutely no idea what difference making putting do you know why leaving a review improve does it improve your rating in some way uh, i really don't know sorry do you know what i should do i should do some research before i start talking mm-hmm. to people <laughs> so i will do that and i'll find out but you should leave a review anyway even though i don't really know what difference it will make um so yes thanks very much rob for joining us thank you for having me hopefully i'll be back soon indeed and, uh, good luck with the book and um uh, and that's it. Goodbye.